We're going to continue in our, our working through of 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bible, you can go to chapter 1, and we're near the end of chapter 1. And I thought that maybe we'd finish chapter 1 today, but then you get diving into the studying of the text, and I'm going to go a little slower than I thought, which is probably common. Um, you're at the end of chapter 1, we're going to be in verse 18. And Scripture, if you have read Scripture long enough, you know that it gives us many different metaphors to think about the Christian life. Uh, ways of thinking about the Christian life. You could think of Psalm 23, where you think of life as uh, a, a walk with a shepherd, where we are like sheep and God is like a shepherd. And you get this imagery in your mind, these metaphors that help us understand what it is to walk with trust with a shepherd leading us. It's a metaphor that helps us understand life. There's a metaphor that helps us understand life in James chapter 4 where the writer James says that life is like a vapor. And it's meant to give us a picture, an analogy that gives our attention or draws our attention to a certain aspect of life Uh, In this case, James is telling us our life is like a vapor in order to remind us that life is short, that it will not last forever, that it will disappear soon. But one of Paul's favorite metaphors that he brings up again and again in many of his letters is the metaphor of warfare. Warfare. Uh, Paul talks often in language of warfare. And if you're there in chapter 1, I'm going to read the text. I'm going to show you that in this text, Paul is thinking of ministry as he's talking to Timothy, his protege, in terms of military war in order to help Timothy understand his calling as he serves the church. Read with me in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. We're going to focus kind of on the middle of this text, We're not going to get the whole of these verses. I want to draw right out of the middle where he focuses on this phrase, or he uses this phrase, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Paul wants Timothy to think of his life in ministry in terms of war. The word there for wage and warfare are the same Greek word used in different ways. It's the word that we get strategy from and it refers to not a battle, not a single fight. It refers to a campaign of war. This is not a single skirmish that Paul wants to tell Timothy he's up doing. This is something that Timothy is committing to as he commits to ministry that Paul wants him to be fully aware of. You are committed to wage war, to campaign, to go to battle not once, not twice, but for the whole of your life and ministry, you are at war. If the church will be healthy, if the church will be productive, if we're going to be faithful, then Paul is clear here that leaders at least and church members in general need to adopt this mindset that the church is at war. 
This is not only here in Timothy. We're going to see this throughout Scripture. Even the word at the very beginning. Look at verse 18. This charge. It's a word that he brings up again and again. It's in chapter 1, verse 3. He tells the Timothy he needs to charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. In verse 5, he says the aim of our charge is love. This word charge is repeated. And it is, again, a military word. It's the same word that a superior officer would uh, charge an inferior officer to do something. It's a command. It's something you don't argue with. It's something that if it's coming from on high, you've got to listen, and you're under orders, and you have to obey. Timothy is listening to Paul, and he would read this, and he would feel the weight because that word carries weight. This is a command. This is a charge. This is a big deal. This is not something you negotiate. This is not something you try to get around. That word charge was also a word used in, in legal settings where you were summoned to appear in court. Uh, you were charged to appear in court. You don't argue. You don't uh, ask if you could change the date. Uh, you are given a charge. You show up. You are summoned. And you are then obligated to do whatever has been called or you've been charged to do. Pastoral ministry here is being care, or compared to warfare. And some of you guys are thinking, seriously, Eric? Come on, you work one day a week. You're up on Sundays, and that's all you do. Well, apparently, in the biblical texts here, Paul conceives of ministry as some war that is being waged all the time, and that ministry in general, not just pastoral ministry, but ministry in general, if you desire to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, you can conceive of your ministry as waging war, advancing on the powers of darkness. The idea is this, that there is a war going on. There are, there are bullets whizzing by. There are uh, people on both sides, enemies, and then your allies. And we are here in a war and called to understand it, to fight in it, to wage war. I'm going to give us three imperatives from this to help us get a grasp on this. And our first imperative as a church that I want us to, to think about is this. Wake up, you're in a war. Here's our first point. Wake up, you're in a war. If you want to be a soldier in the Lord's army, if you want to make a difference in the battle that's being fought and the war that's being waged, here's number one, wake up. How many people, maybe you're one of them, have never thought of the reality of the spiritual war? Maybe it is that you got up this morning and you're coming to church and there wasn't any concern about spiritual war. How many people do you know that their life is not really about the cosmic war between God and Satan that's been going on since at least Genesis 3, even before that? And since people are not aware of that, their life gets wrapped up in trivialities. Small things that hold no eternal significance. Uh, you know those people who their next job promotion is their biggest concern or the next toy that they want to buy is their biggest concern or what outfit they're going to wear. That's their biggest concern. Trivialities. It's like there's this battle being fought and there's soldiers marching forward and they're facing the enemy and there's someone over in the corner watching YouTube videos. 
just completely uh, not even paying attention to what's going on. They're, they're, they're not paying attention to the war. I think there are so many Christians who are going through life that way and church has become an event you attend uh, that Bible reading is kind of an obligation that all Christians are supposed to do and you're not really thinking about the urgency of a war. The spiritual war. Even this letter, uh, the, the, the spiritual warfare comes out very clear in Paul's letters to Timothy. Spiritual warfare is very present. You see in verse 20, uh, he is told, or he is saying that he had to hand over some guys to Satan. There's Satan being mentioned in the very passage that we're going to hit uh, mostly next week, but part of it even this week. In chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, where he's talking about elders and their qualifications, two times Satan is brought up. Satan is brought up because elders can be tempted to fall into the same condemnation as the devil, that is pride. And Satan is brought up because he says elders are going to be, uh, need to be wary of the snare of the devil, that is falling into disgrace. Elders are under attack. In chapter 4, verse 1, the false teachers that had plagued the church that Timothy was supposed to be ministering to, uh, they were teaching what Paul calls the doctrines of demons. In chapter 5, he's discussing widows and their place in the church, and he describes certain widows that have strayed after Satan because they become so distracted by the things of the world, become busybodies, they become gossips. Paul would say that they've strayed after Satan. It is as if Satan is prowling around the church. He wants to get elders. He wants to capture people. He wants to grip them. He hold them, pull them out, distract them, whatever he can. Satan is opposed to God and so our first point we need to wake up to this reality and I do think that in America where we tend to be scientific modern men and women we don't think much about the supernatural do we or we tend to think oh Satan really doesn't work that way yeah there were a bunch of demon possessions in the old and new testaments or things like that that we saw in scripture but I've never seen anything like that I don't know anything about demon oppression I've never seen how a demon could possess anything that's the stuff of movies I'm a modern man I'm a modern woman I don't think about things in those ways well it's time for us to wake up to the war that's going on it's time for us to open our eyes I think to the to, if we want to obey this text and take the implications for ourselves and for our church that Paul says, wage the good warfare. First of all, we better know there's a war. And I want to help us under this first point, this will probably be our longest point, to get a grip on what is this war like and why it has existed and get us a little history of this war. And I want to start by saying, first of all, that this war is a war of Satan and God. God and Satan. In a sense, we're all kind of incidental. Uh, Satan hates us because we are image bearers of this holy God. He hates the church because the church is meant to glorify God. But Satan hates God. I want to show you this by showing you maybe a less known passage in the book of Ezekiel. You turn in your Bibles to the book of the prophet Ezekiel. This is a fascinating text where Ezekiel, the prophet, is prophesying against the king of Tyre, okay, the king of Tyre. 
And as often happens in prophecies, when the prophet begins speaking, he speaks on one level to a human person, but there's another level that the prophet speaks to the source behind the human that he's addressing. So he's addressing on one level the king of Tyre, but immediately you will see this, that he is not merely talking about the king of Tyre, he's talking about the power behind the king of Tyre, this wicked king of Tyre. Look at verse 11 of Ezekiel 28. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. So on the surface here, he's just going to speak to the king of Tyre. But listen to what he says. He says, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. And you might be immediately saying, okay, that's an odd thing to say about the king of Tyre that he was perfect, that he was full of wisdom, that he was perfect in beauty, and you'd be right to know that he's not merely talking about the king of Tyre, and you'd especially know because of what it says in the next verse. Look at verse 13. You were in Eden. Okay, it's not the king of Tyre entirely. He's speaking about something else, a power behind the king of Tyre. This power, we will see, is Satan. He describes him in verse 12 as the signet of perfection. Full of wisdom, this wise creature, it's perfect in beauty. Satan was this perfectly wise, perfectly beautiful creation of God. In verse 13, he was in Eden. And this is referring to not the serpent, not him as the fallen serpent, before he had fallen, this perfect, wise, beautiful creation of God, roaming in the garden, the garden of God, it says every precious stone was your covering, and he lists these stones, sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. Some of these same stones were mentioned in the high priest's garments that they wore in the Old Testament. This, this creature had a, uh, a, the language that's, being descri- that's describing this creature is very high language, beautiful, clothed in these beautiful stones, gold, on the day you were created, it says. The day they were prepared. Look at this in verse 14. You were an anointed guardian cherub. A cherub was a type of angel. In some translations, it says you were a cherub that covers. He was referring to this in the Ark of the Covenant, that golden box that the Israelites had made by God's direction. There were two angels that were put on it that their wings were spread forward covering the mercy seat. And in Jewish thought, these were the highest privileged angels, the ones that guarded the very presence of God. He's saying that this creature who existed in the garden, who was beautiful, who was wise, had this position of being a guardian cherub. That is what the highest position an angel could hold. He says, I placed you and you were on the holy mountain of God. That's not referring to Sinai. That would be referring to the very presence of God. He says, in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. Sometimes in the Bible, you encounter angels that are messengers. They're here, they're there, they're being sent. They're giving messages to different people. Well, here's an angel created uh, in its main role here is a guardian. 
and it's meant to remain in the presence of God. It's one of those angels maybe uh, that you, reminiscent at least, is the ones you see in Isaiah chapter 6 that are saying, holy, holy, holy. Uh, The role apparently is not to go here and go there. Its role is to stand in the presence of God. It has some sort of guardian type role. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked this other realm that we don't know much about in the very presence of God. This amazing creature was set. It was placed there. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. God created this being, this wonderful, amazing, beautiful, wise creature in his very own presence. He was blameless. And and, and if you think about this, we only experience growth in terms of degrees you have a child you see that at first it crawls and then it learns to walk and then it learns its word and we see immaturity turn to maturity this is not the case in the angelic realm they don't grow up when they were created they were created as is and so this creature guardian cherub was spoken into existence by God and the moment it awoke he found himself to be brilliant wise beautiful, a signet of perfection. Most likely because of his role, he was in charge of the hosts of heaven. He was maybe, scholars say, something like the prime minister of the universe. He was given a whole bunch of authority over the universe. We know that he was created before the physical creation, although he did spend some time in Eden, because in Job chapter 38, verse 6, It says that the angels all rejoiced when the world was made. When the foundations of the world were laid, there were angels rejoicing. And so this creature was there. He he saw God create. When he came to recognize who he was, he knew that he was brilliant and glorious and amazing creature. He had all kinds of hosts at his disposal that would do his will. And then it says... Till unrighteousness was found in you. This creature, at one point, and we can't get to the heart of the answer to this question, how did that happen in a perfectly sinless world? I think that's one of those questions we just don't know that we'll ask Jesus when we get to eternity. But at some point, point in the after the creation of this amazing creature this guardian cherub unrighteousness was found in him it says in verse 17 your heart was proud because of your beauty and so what happened was something like this he saw who he was he saw his own brilliance he saw his own wisdom he saw that there was no other creature higher than him and then he looked over and he saw the throne of god and he some point we don't know for sure how it happened we don't even have the exact timing when it happened but we know it happened before genesis 3 at some point he looked at god and within his own heart this unrighteous thought arose that was something along the lines of i want his position I want to dethrone him. I want him off the throne. I want to be the the fully authoritative ruler of all the universe. And though he had been given such a high and lofty position as this guardian cherub, he still was not God. And so he 
was filled with pride and unrighteousness was found in him. It says your heart was proud because of beauty. Verse 17, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. His his wisdom was corrupt because he saw his own splendor. He saw his own beauty. And so he said, I want to be like God. I'm turning away from God. I'm going to try to dethrone God. And it says in verse 17, God cast him out of heaven. And their friends is the beginning of the spiritual war. It begins with Satan. It begins with this guardian cherub who sees God and though he is a great and glorious creature, Satan sees God and at some point says, I want to be God. I want his position. But God casts him out. You're not a guardian cherub anymore. You're not going to have that position anymore. And yet, we know from other texts in Scripture that this amazing awesome, beautiful creature still holds a measure of authority in the world that God created. He's called the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. He's called the Prince of the Power of the Air, Ephesians 2.2. In fact, 1 John 5.19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It is as if God created this creature to have a measure of authority and when he sinned God no longer allowed him to be the guardian cherub that he set him up to be but this creature still maintained a measure of authority over the world so that he could even be called the god of this world the prince of the power of the air the whole world stands under his power so this dazzling creature now roams the earth first peter would call him like a roaring and prowling lion. You see his restlessness in Job chapter 1. He's going to and fro in the earth, seeking people to devour. This is interesting that he's not alone in this. And so the spiritual war is not just Satan alone versus God and his angels, because we know in Revelation chapter 12 verse 4 that somehow Satan persuaded a third of the angels to come along with him. And he says that a third of the angels followed Satan in the rebellion. And so we know that Satan was such an awesome creature, such an amazing creature, that he persuaded a third of the angels to go with him. A third of the angels saw Satan and thought, hey, I think he might have a shot at winning this. I think he might have a shot of overthrowing the throne of God. And so a third of angels went with Satan. They were cast out of heaven. You say, well, how many demons is that? How many angels does Satan have? Well, probably a lot. Because there's a lot of angels, right? You know, Luke chapter 2, we're going to read Luke 2 around Christmas time. And the shepherds see the angels. And you know how many it says there are? Multitudes. Uh, You know what it says in Revelation when uh, John hears the voice of angels. You know what it says, how many there are? It says, the angels were numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Literally in Greek, it says 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. (laughs) That's what it's saying. And the funny thing about that is 10,000 was the highest Greek number. So there was no higher number. It would be like you saying it's zillions and zillions and zillions. It's just so many angels. And so what's a third of a zillion? <laughs> what's a third of 10,000s upon 10,000s and thousands and thousands? Um, a lot. I don't know the number. Do the math. Uh, you could figure that out. 
this is all I do know, is that there are lots of enemies. They are ruled by Satan. He is their chief. They do his bidding. There's a lot of demons. If there's only 10,000 demons, we know there's at least 3,300 demons if a third of them went bad. So there's so many demons in the world. And Satan, in this position of authority over the demonic realm, is turned against God. He wants to dethrone God. He wants to thwart God's work in the world. And mainly what he wants to do is to steal God's glory. He wants it for himself. He, he longs for it for himself. And so everything that he does finally, ultimately, is to try to thwart God. You could read the entire Bible through that lens and it makes a lot of sense, right? Think of Pharaoh slaughtering the Hebrew children. Isn't that demonic? Slaughtering children to try to get to Moses. Think of Haman in the book of Esther who says, I'm going to make a plot to destroy the entire Jewish race. If that's not satanic, I don't know what it is. Think of Christ's birth. What does Herod do? Kill all the baby boys. Let's get the Messiah dead. Who's behind that? It's like at every turn, Satan is trying to swallow up God's plan of redemption by killing the people God wants to use to bring about the salvation. So babies are slaughtered around Christmas time, the very first Christmas. Jesus shows up on the scene, and what's the first thing you encounter? It's the temptation of Christ. Jesus says, hey, jump off a building. Or Jesus didn't say that. Satan says, jump off a building. Satan says, give me your kingdom. Bow down and worship me. He wants God to fail. He wants Jesus to fail. There he is possessing Judas. It says he entered into Judas and he caused Judas to go betray Jesus. I'm sure he's there in the mocking soldiers. I'm sure he's there the bloodthirsty crowd. I'm sure he's there at those soldiers trying to keep him in the grave. Every turn the church has made, the people of God have made, there's been Satan trying to thwart them, to slaughter them, to persecute them, to infiltrate them, to stop them. Why? So that God would not receive glory. Satan wants the throne of heaven. And you might think, well, Jesus died, he rose again, and now he's in heaven. Well, uh, now the war is going to be up there because that's where Jesus is. Well, guys, guess what? We are the bride of Christ. We are his body. And you know where Satan is now levying his attacks? It's the church. It's the church. Because as soon as the church is established in Acts chapter 2, you get a few chapters later in Acts chapter 5, and you get a little story about Ananias and Sapphira, these two members of the church who lie, and you know what Peter says to them? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Satan was right there in that early church, infiltrating the church, even getting in these church members' hearts, filling their hearts to lie. Friends, we are the target now. We are the target now. The Christ body, Christ bride, the church. Satan wants God's glory blemished. And so he takes aim at God's people and God's people gathered in churches and committed to churches. And so the church is under attack. Did you think about that this morning when you got up? How significant a decision you made when you said, I'm going to get up and go to church. 
It puts a little gravity to this, doesn't it? That we showed up against the powers of darkness, against even the powers of our own flesh to remember the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. It puts a little gravity to this. Listen, guys, there's a mindset that you will have or not have if you get this truth. You will have a mindset of there's a weightiness to this thing we do called the Christian life, called the church. There's a gravity. There's a meaningfulness to all this that we're doing that you will have if you understand what Paul was saying to Timothy. You're at war. Wage the good warfare. And yet there's another mindset that you'll have if you don't see this. An attitude of flippancy. (laughs) Who cares? They're going to go do church. It's all going to be fine. And doesn't it affect the way you view sin? How could you possibly think that fighting for the enemy by indulging in a life of sin is going to be okay with Jesus? That's treason is what that is. It It causes us to take sin more seriously. Our first point is wake up. Because I think so much of the American church mindset is not that there's a war going on. We take the peacetime mindset. Yes, Jesus lived and died and rose for sinners. Now all's good. And he has. And we rest in his finished work. But Satan is still alive and well. Yes, there has been a fatal wound given to him at the cross and in the resurrection. And yet he prowls around like a roaring lion. Is your outlook on life, basically, I've got my problems and I've got to figure them out? Or do you have an outlook that's more like this? God's glory is under attack. My life, because I'm committing to Jesus Christ and I'm committed to this God that I serve, that I love, that lived and died for me, I want to live for him, I must be vigilant. I must be alert. I must be sober-minded. I mean, think of this, friends. Think of all the things that Satan can do. He's called the deceiver of the whole world. He wants to get into your mind, and we know through Scripture that he can, in ways I don't know how to explain, influence your thinking patterns. We mentioned Acts chapter 5, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Satan can fill your heart to lie. Uh, We know that he's behind distraction. When you read the parable... Remember the seeds? They get tossed on the path. The seeds of God's Word get tossed out. And the path represents certain types of listeners. In this path, the seeds don't take root. And it says, you know what the next thing it says? It says there's birds hovering around and the seeds sitting there on the path. These birds swoop in and they take the seeds away. And then Satan goes and explains it. He says, you know what the bird represents? The birds are Satan and his demons. So this very moment, the Word of God is being explained and preached, hopefully clarified and understood. And yet there's birds like demons hovering around wanting to swoop in so that the moment you leave, you forgot everything you heard. Because there's a football game on, and there's a lunch to eat, and this issue going on back at home, and distractions are Satan's specialty. He can fill the heart to lie. He can distract you. It says in Matthew 20, or 16, 23, Peter says something dumb and Jesus has to say to him, remember this? Get behind me, Satan. 
And then he explains why Satan, how Satan had influenced him. He says, for you are a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Somehow, Satan had so influenced Peter that his mind was on the wrong thing. His mind was on human things, uh, horizontal things. He had forgotten the things of God. And Jesus says Satan was behind it. You take it a step further, we know in the New Testament that Satan possessed Judas. It's a possibility. You know in the New Testament demons could possess people, take complete control over a person. So if you're not a believer, Satan's strategy against you is to distract you from caring about any of this stuff. Make your life easy so you never ask hard questions. Never take time to consider your eternal soul. Or he can do this by making your life so hard that you never even pause to ask these questions because you just don't have the bandwidth to do so. Either way, he just wants you to not think about the things of the Lord. He wants to get your mind off the things of God and set them on the things of man. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy this church he wants to ruin us because in ruining us, he feels he can take a, or make a blow against God. This is where the gospel is so glorious, friends, because the gospel teaches us about deliverance. Colossians 1.13, he, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. God redeems sinners. Redemption, that is the word that means buying back out of a slave market. The idea of this is that all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins, but not merely that, that we were following the prince of the power of the air. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 says. We were enslaved to sin and Satan. We were, of our, we were children of our father, the devil, Jesus would say. And yet the gospel teaches is by the death burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. That by faith in Him, we are delivered, freed, redeemed from His power and authority over our lives. So this creature, Satan, who has a whole host of armies at his disposal, who wants to get in our minds, who wants to distract us, who wants to fill our hearts to lie against God, who wants us to get our minds off the things of God, we can be delivered, but it's only through Christ and Christ alone. He's our only hope. We have an advocate. And so we wake up, right? We need to wake up to this reality. John Blanchard says this, we are opposed by a living, intelligent, resourceful, and cunning enemy who can outlive the oldest Christian, outwork the busiest, outfight the strongest, and outwit the wisest. He's aiming at us. Not just our church. In all churches that preach the word and preach the gospel. He's against us. And so you might be asking yourself, well, how do I fight? What do I do? How do we respond to this? Here's our second point. Here's our second point. You can make your way back to 1 Timothy. Our second point is clean up. So our first is wake up. You're in a war. Here's our second point. Clean up. Your character matters. Clean up your life. Clean up the the dark corners of your life where you're allowing sin to breed. Clean up. Clean up your life. And here's where we get this. It says, uh, 
that by them, in verse 18 of 1 Timothy, you may wage the good warfare. So wake up to the warfare, Timothy. You're in a war. And then he says in verse 19, how you do it. Here's a little explanatory clause. Holding faith and a good conscience. Faith and a good conscience. You want to fight the war? Hold your faith. Hold your good conscience. Faith. He's referring to his own belief. Timothy needs to make sure he's not falling into the doubt of the devil. Satan loves to cause people to doubt his word. And Paul says, hold your faith. Hold on to the truth. Keep believing the right things. Make sure you're grasping on to truth. And then he says also, a good conscience. And you've got to ask yourself, well, what, where, where does a bad conscience come from? You know where a bad conscience come from? Your conscience gets bad when you harbor little sins in your heart, doesn't it? When you just nibble at the table crumbs of sin. Yeah, this is okay here, a little bit there. This is not a big deal. I'll deal with it later. Nobody else knows. Ah, that's just something going on in my mind. It's not affecting anyone. Ah, it's something I do in private. No one else is impacted by it. What does that do? It sears your conscience. It gives you a nagging sense of guilt that you'll either silence by just sinning more or it'll drive you mad. A good conscience comes then by obedience to the revealed Word of God. And so what Paul is saying, here's what you need to do, Timothy, to fight the good warfare. Know what you believe and believe it. Hold faith. Don't doubt. Grasp it and hold on to the truths you've been told. But then also, have a good conscience. Walk in obedience. Deal with sin immediately. Don't let it fester. Don't let it grow. Don't think that the dark corners of your life, the skeletons in your closet, are not going to impact anyone. They absolutely will. Your character matters. Character's king. All throughout these, these letters that Paul gives to Timothy, you come out with this, this conclusion, character matters. It doesn't matter how gifted you are as a preacher. It doesn't matter uh, what kind of competencies you have. If your character is compromised, you're going to be a tool, a pawn, that serves the other side against God. You're going to be a tool that Satan can use. I want to show you something in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. This is a fascinating little statement. If you want to turn there, you can. I'll read it, though, so you can just listen if you want. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, he's speaking about how people in the church ought to relate to one another, Paul is. And he says this, and this is often used in marriage counseling, and it should be, but I want to expand the application to just life in general. He says this, do not let the sun go down on your anger. You've probably heard that before. You know, make things right before you go to bed. Fix the issue. But then he gives a reason why we should not let the sun go down on our anger. And he says this, Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You say, why should I deal with sin immediately so I don't bring it and drag it into the next day? Why? Because if I drag it into the next day, I'm giving Satan an opportunity. I'm giving him a foothold. See, here's, here's the implication of this text. When we fester sin in our hearts, when we allow anger, but I don't think just anger, I think we could expand this to mean sin in general, not just anger, impatience, lusts, dishonesty, lack of integrity, 
We're not dealing with these issues. We're dragging them from one day into the next day and one day into the next day. See, Satan can't cause you to sin. He can't go in and grab you and make you do sinful things. But what he can do and what he does do is every sin that you don't deal with, little sins in the dark corners of your mind and in your heart and in your affections, he can reach in like it's a foothold and he can grab on and he can use these sins that you are committing, this lack of character, and he can exploit you. He could ruin you. He could get into your life and make that. It's like the handlebars he's going to use. It's, it's the steering wheel he used. The undealt with sin in your own life is something Satan can work with. And Satan is an opportunist. He's going to use everything he can. And so the little sins that you're not dealing with, the sins that no one else knows about, the secret stuff, the stuff you think no one else knows about, no one else cares about, that stuff is what Satan is going to use to get a foothold in your life. And so what does this mean? It means clean up your life. Deal with your sin. Deal with the little things. Stop the stuff that you think no one else knows about. Confess. So I'll just pause for a moment and just say, if you are walking in a kind of secret sin that you don't want anyone else to know about, or maybe it's just something you're struggling with and you're just going, ah, no, I can do it on my own. I can get by. And you're not dealing with it, really? Let me just plead with you. Confess that sin. Get it out on the table before God. But then go to a brother or a sister in Christ and say, I need help because if I don't get help, I, my undealt sin will be an unlocked door that Satan will sneak into. It will be an unsealed window that Satan will creep in through. My own sin will ruin me. Satan will ruin me if I don't deal with this. And so I urge you, deal with it. Every secret sin, every festering argument, every grudge, every lust, every time you're ignoring your sin, it's a foothold. It's a foothold. So, I like what Robert Murray McShane said. He said, what my people need most, he was a pastor, what my people need most is my personal holiness. Moms and dads, husbands and wives, what your kids need most or what your spouse needs most is your own personal holiness. Otherwise, your sin, big or small, will be exploited by the evil one. We are at war. Now specifically in this text, Paul's writing to a pastor, Timothy, a guy who's doing pastoral ministry. And I think there's a special attention we need to pay to the context because Paul knows that those who lead in the church are going to have the biggest bullseye on them because if you could take down the guy who's leading the church, you can just put the whole church in a bunch of confusion and disruption. He went after Peter, Satan did, head of the apostles. He wanted to sift Peter like wheat. He went after Paul, you remember the thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to harass him. In the elder qualifications, I mentioned it already, Satan is brought up twice because Satan wants to take down the leaders and the elders of the church. He wants to take down, really, anyone who is all in with Jesus, who is actually making an influence on other people, who is bringing glory to God, who is leading people to follow Jesus more closely. He wants to take those people down. One seminary professor, at the beginning of his class, as he was preparing a class for ministry, told 
his whole class at the very beginning of the class that you better become familiar with another vocation other than pastoral ministry. And he scanned the class and he said, because there's a certain percentage of you that are gonna fall into immorality. So get used to something else if it's you. Of course, that's meant to sober up the class. It is with fear and trembling that I studied these passages this week. To know that Paul gave special, special attention to Timothy because Timothy was leading in a church. If you want to make a difference in the kingdom, if you want to make a difference in people's lives, if you want to rise to a level of leadership in a congregation and leadership, helping others follow Jesus, you will have a bullseye. And yet, it is the most glorious work you will ever do. It is the most glorious work you will ever do. And Timothy is all in to fight on behalf of his Lord, Jesus Christ. In fact, I think those who are called to Christ in salvation, when they see his glory, they say, I don't care the cost. I'm all in. If I get a bullseye on my back, I get a bullseye on my back, but I'm going in with Jesus. Otherwise, if, if we don't go all in and we don't fight our sin and we're not holding faith in a good conscience, we're going to do what Paul describes the others did in verse 19. They rejected this, and so it says they made shipwreck of their faith. So friends, this is our option. We either clean up. If we want to make an influence on the other people around us and help people follow Jesus, we hold faith. We walk in obedience and hold a good conscience. Lastly, here's our last imperative. First, we wake up, we clean up. Lastly, we gear up. Gear up. Because you might even be saying to yourself, okay, I want to keep my faith and a good conscience. Okay, what do I do now? What's now? I want to, I want, I'm in with Christ. I'm a soldier in his army. I want to make an impact. Um, okay, I'm going to deal with my sin. I'm going to get serious with my sin. I'm going to hold the faith. I'm going to believe the promises, and I'm going to deal with my sin. Well, now get ready. Gear up. And this little phrase that says, hold faith in a good conscience, that's like shorthand for where Paul goes into more detail in Ephesians chapter 6. I want to go to Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to end in this text. Because in Ephesians chapter 6 is the fuller explanation of how to engage in spiritual warfare. We're going to blaze through this, but I want this to be given to you as something maybe later you can go study on your own. Gear up. Here's our third imperative. Gear up. Put on the full armor of God. You want to hold faith in a good conscience? Here, that's the short version. You want the more explained version? Ephesians chapter 6, we'll start in verse 10. Follow along with me. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Okay, we're, we're, in, a, we're in a war here. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Friends, let's be awake to this reality. The battle is not with each other. It's not physical. It's not here that we could see. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against who? Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the, in the heavenly places. We are united against a common foe. Isn't it true that a common foe usually unites the country? 
Well, this is what we do. We unite against this common enemy. Verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the e- on the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Now listen to this. He's going to give us some things to put on. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. That's our first one. You guys have a good grip on the truth revealed in Scripture? You guys have a good intake of the Holy Word of God, letting the truths of Scripture shape the way you view the world? That's what the belt of truth is. A belt would hold all the ancient soldiers' pieces of clothing together. A belt would hold it all tight. You don't have truth. Everything's all over the place. Your life's going to be a mess. So start with the belt of truth. Study God's Word. Listen well to sermons. Read good books. Get your hands on the truth and don't let go. The belt of truth. Are you wearing the belt of truth? Second, he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. Look at this. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So here he's saying not just know the truth, but have a righteous life. Live live the truth. Let your righteous life be protective over your very own heart so that Satan doesn't have a foothold in your life. Be a part of this community of learners, this church, where we're not just trying to learn the truth abstractly, but to learn it in our daily lives, seeking to live out a righteous life. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15, and having shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The shoes of gospel readiness. Uh, Understand the gospel so that you're prepared to serve him. To be a true soldier in God's army, you've got to be ready with the gospel. Ready to speak it to yourself and speak it to others as occasion requires. Look at the next one. In verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you are able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Satan wants to attack you, distract you, distort the truth in you. He wants to tempt you. You say, well, what do I do? Faith. It's a shield. What do, you, what do you mean? How does that work? By faith, you hold on to the truth. By faith, you know what you believe. By faith, when lies come in, you deflect the lies by knowing the truth. Again, coming back to the belt of truth. You cannot use the shield of faith if you don't have the belt of truth because faith is grappling with, holding on to, fighting to believe what's right and true. The shield of faith. Put on the helmet of salvation. That's the next one. Take the helmet of salvation. Uh, the, the helmet of salvation, that means know with assurance, with certainty that you are indeed Christ's. Know you're saved. Let that assurance give you confidence. Know in your mind the salvation God has given you. Be confident in those things. And lastly, the one offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. True soldiers have one weapon. It's not even their own weapon. It's the spirits. But this is what we do in God's army. As God's soldier, we can't push back Satan. We don't have the power to do that. We can't push back demons. We don't do that. We can, all we can do to advance the cause is to go back to the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. Friends, that's why we preach the way we do. That's why we encourage regular conversations that are sprinkled and flavored with the truth of Scripture. That's why I encourage growth groups where it's another venue to talk, speak the truth and love to one another because the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is active in the hearts and lives of the people who are speaking it to one another. How are you doing? 
you gear up, you got the belt on, the breastplate on, helmet of salvation, you got all this stuff, you're ready to fight. Friends, we are in a war. Let that metaphor that Paul uses wage the good warfare, color the way you think about your life in ministry following Jesus. Let it cause you to cling to Christ more closely because he alone can overcome the darkness, not you. Let us lock arms with brothers and sisters at arms more devotedly, knowing we need each other in the battle. Let us pray more fervently. Let us learn God's word more devotedly, more carefully. Let's live more obediently, knowing that every sin that we harbor in our hearts is something Satan can grab hold of and turn to his own desires. Do you have a wartime mindset? In church, as we follow Jesus, let's adopt a wartime mindset. Because we are, like Paul said to Timothy all those years ago, we are called to wage the good warfare. Let's pray. So, Lord, we are small and we are weak in this battle and we don't have anything in and of ourselves to take on the foe except that you have provided all that we need. Truth, righteousness, the promises of the gospel. You've enabled us to have faith. You've given us the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that people here in this room this very moment would feel a need to confess sin if that's what they need to do. I pray that we would be awakened to a spiritual reality that maybe we've never thought of before. And I pray, Lord, that your truth communicated this morning would encourage us because, Lord, we know that in the end you are victorious. So, Lord, we will ride your coattails to victory. Thank you that you've called us to be in the fight. May we, may we fight well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.